We're in the middle of this series called Daniel, Faithful in a Broken World, where we're exploring the ancient Hebrew text of Daniel in the Old Testament. And even though this book was written thousands of years ago, it's very relevant to our context today. There's been uh, actually a lot of chatter in the past few years amongst pastors and church planners in our area along the lines of how American, America is actually now considered a post-Christian society. Have any of you heard some of this discussion in recent years? It, it doesn't mean that Christianity is a thing of the past or that there aren't any Christians anymore in the world. I mean, look around. We're here, and there's all, actually all kinds of very vibrant churches, uh, even in a city like Portland. Think back to the Good News Today event last summer. I mean, thousands of people in our city alone who love and follow Jesus. However, what it does mean is that the secularization of American culture is almost complete. That what happened at more of an academic elite level uh, decades ago in our society has more normalized now to a mainstream level at large, which means that for most young people now these days growing up in our culture, you know, uh, living on Snapchat and Apple TV and Xbox, Christianity isn't really on their radar and it's easy in this culture to just live a secular life. And so the question is, how do you and I navigate that as followers of Jesus in a city like Portland? Uh, how do we live for Jesus in a post-Christian society? And the book of Daniel actually really speaks into this. The text today is a little bit on the long side. It's, uh, it's just a, a really long text. So bear with me. I'm going to move through it really fast. So tune in. Perk up. You can take a nap later this afternoon. Here we go. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We'll start by reading it. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. A cubit, by the way, is a foot and a half. Uh, so think 90 feet tall. Big old image. It says, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, captain, redundant captain, assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Verse 4, then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, and, and a quick side, I love how in a city like ours, you know, we have all uh, lots of good music, these garage bands, and they're always trying these experimental instruments. Like 10 or 15 years ago, it was the guitar with the rock bands, you know, you'd had to have. Now it's like, you know, everyone's got to have the mandolin and the viola. My only question for you guys is, yeah, but do you have a zitherist? You know what I'm saying? Like, you really want to be cool? Where's your zitherer? Here's actually a picture of an ancient zither. The Bible's an old book. It was a stringed instrument. Don't get hung up on that. Keep reading. Look down. They're all gathered around. The music plays. Verse 5, it says, As soon as you hear the music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music. This author really likes lists, by the way. All the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so if you guys know the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sometimes I call him Nebi for short. At the time, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man 
in the world. He was at the head of this global military superpower, Babylon, who had conquered Israel among many other nations and had taken them into captivity. And he decides to make this image or this statue, and it doesn't say exactly what the statue is of. It could have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself, could have uh, been a statue of the Babylonian gods. Uh, many scholars believe it was some sort of image or statue of Babylon, the nation state, like a symbol they had for their nation back then, representing Babylon's power. So what they are worshiping, what they are bowing down to is the power of this entity that is Babylon, the greatest nation on earth at the time. And all of Babylon, it said, is spread out before this image. And that's the meaning of the phrase he repeated, you know, the satraps, the, the, the prefects, the governors. It's kind of like saying the who's who in Babylon at the time, whether it was Babylonians, Egyptians, Assyrians, Hebrew. Everybody is there and they all bow down. Or do they? Look at verse 8. At this time, some Chaldeans, it could also be translated astrologers, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Suck-ups. Your majesty... Verse 10, has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by name, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so this is crazy. Imagine in a sea of people, picture thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, all of the nation in a sense is there. Out of all of them, only three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down. Now, they're quiet about it. Uh, they don't protest. We don't read about any bullhorns or sandwich board signs. There's no rally or march. They don't have a hashtag like hashtag never Nebuchadnezzar or anything like that. <laughs> the king doesn't even notice it at first. But the Chaldeans, who if you remember the story, are they're essentially the co-workers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they rat them out. And we assume uh, this is like infighting, office politics. The Chaldeans are jealous that these three Hebrews, not Babylonians, have risen to the upper ranks of government. And so this is their chance to throw them under the bus and get the Jews in trouble. Now, for those of you thinking, where's Daniel? Why isn't he amongst the three who, does that mean Daniel bowed down to the golden image? Well, no. Actually, if you remember the last line of the last chapter, chapter 2, we read Daniel himself remained at the royal court. The author makes sure to note that. So we're pretty sure Daniel is not at this particular gathering. He's back at the capital helping to run the royal court. Now, keep reading. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, it just repeats like a bad song, right? And all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But, and listen to this, guys. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Talk about megalomania, right? I'm more powerful than your God. What God can rescue you from my hand? I mean, notice the anger, the condescending rash talk, the boasting from a political leader. Personally, I'm, I'm so grateful we've evolved past this in modern times. Verse 16, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And, and watch this, guys. This is striking. Verse 17, they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, i.e., our God is actually more powerful than you. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Wow. Think of the courage to say that. And notice, because we can all learn from this, they don't yell, they don't scream, they just say, okay, do your worst. They're respectful. They say, your majesty, understand you're asking everyone to bow down. Uh, we, we can't. I'm sorry, but no. Keep in mind, this is not the 21st century Western secular world. This is 6th century BC, ancient Near East. I mean, it is pluralism to the core. This is a world where spirituality and religion and politics and a whole bunch of other stuff are all mixed up together. There's no separation of church and state. It's all together. The king, the gods of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, all kind of mixed together in a giant pot. And the three Jews in this story, they aren't loud, they aren't disrespectful or snarky at all, but, but make no mistake, to not bow down uh, to the image of Babylon, it was not only a very subversive act, but it, it was a threat to the status quo, and it was very dangerous, which is why. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, which from Hebrew to English translates as extra hot, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. I love it. He orders the strongest soldiers to tie them. Like, you got to wonder how it would feel to be the not-so-strong Babylonian soldiers who are watching The Rock and Vin Diesel go over there and get you know, in on all the fun. I have compassion for them. Verse 21, so these men wearing the robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, they're bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. This is very violent for a Sunday morning. Think about the intensity of this, okay? The fire is so hot that just those big, strong soldiers throwing them into the furnace burst into flames or melt or whatever, you know? So goodbye, big, strong soldiers. And the not-so-strong Babylonian soldiers in the corner are now thinking, <laughs> turns out it was our day after all, right? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fire for their defiance. But then, that's not the end of the story. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt up to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, hey, weren't there three that were tied up and thrown into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty, there were three. He said, look, I see one, two, three, four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Fascinating story. And the million-dollar question, of course, is who is the fourth person in the fire? Well, Christian tradition, of course, has always said it's Jesus, and that's how we like to answer almost everything as Christians. That's not a bad answer. The Aramaic word here in the original language, it means a spiritual being, and a paragraph or two later, we read that it's an angel, and so a lot of scholars do connect this to the angel of the Lord who shows up in tons of stories across the Old Testament. Those of you Bible nerds in the room today, if you've never done a study like this before, go 
sometime do a study on all the occurrences of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Tons of evidence that the angel of the Lord is the second member of the Trinity or the pre-incarnate Christ before he shows up as Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. It's fascinating, but whether it was an apparition or appearing of Jesus before he was born of the Virgin Mary there in the fire or some kind of other angel sent by God, the point is that God was obviously with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, right there with them, protecting them, keeping them safe. Verse 26, bear with me, it was all headed somewhere. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, verse 27, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors, they crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So check it out. Like, they didn't even, not only were they unharmed being in the fire that long, they, they didn't even smell like smoke. Like, really? Like, not, not even just a little bit of post-campfire smell on my hoodie? Like, none of it. Nothing. They're, they're perfectly fine. It's today what we would call a miracle. Verse 28, the Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And so he, now he starts to worship the one true God. He says, They trusted in him and defied the king's command. And I love how Nebuchadnezzar refers to himself in the third person often, very Kanye West of him to do. And he says they're willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. And so now he starts to have respect for them. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. So he's still just a little bit far from the heart of God on this stuff, just a little bit, you know, and if anyone doesn't worship their God, cut them into, you know, masochistic Edward Scissorhands and a bad, you know, but this is essentially legal protection, okay? It's a way to legalize Jewish worship of Yahweh for the Hebrews while they're in the Babylonian empire. It's a good thing. It will allow God's people to worship freely. And last, the final verse of the story, verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, and were this a movie, you know, you'd then pan over to the jealous Chaldean astrologers, you know, ripping their clothes and shaking their fists in anger. And then you pan over to the, those not-so-strong Babylonian soldiers left, and they're lifting weights, you know, over there in the corner. And everyone lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. There's a lot more that's going to happen in the book of Daniel. But for today, what do we do with that? What do we do? I'm, and thanks for bearing with me. We flew through that. What do we do with what we just read? And how in the world does that apply to our lives and our context today? I want to talk about that, but real first, before we can get to that, I want to spend uh, two minutes first briefly addressing anyone in the room today who's new to this whole church thing. Uh, I have some words for you, and then I want to uh, speak for a moment with those of you who have been in church for a very long time, and then after that, we'll start getting into some applications. So first, for those of you who are new to church, I just wanted to acknowledge, I know the Bible is a really weird book, okay? And if you read this today with us, and you're sitting there struggling with the idea that three men could be thrown into a fire and not be burned, I get that. 
I've been there personally. At this church, we do believe that the accounts of the Bible are true, that this stuff is not myth or fairy tale or metaphor, that the historical events the Bible describes actually happens, which means we, of course, do believe in the occurrence of miracles in the natural world. And you know, for Christians, by the way, if you believe the opening lines of the Bible in Genesis that God created the world, which is kind of a big miracle, by the way, when you believe that God created everything from nothing, for instance, stuff like three men in a fire unburned or animals of every kind in a giant ark, uh, that, that stuff's like child's play in comparison to that, right? But the real question on miracles and at the heart of Christianity and the heart of the gospel, if you're new to church, is actually the resurrection of Jesus. This idea that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and for the sins of the world and then literally rose from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death. In fact, the New Testament argues that you cannot be a Christian unless you believe the resurrection really happened. That's at the very crux of what it means to be a Christian. And what I want to convey to you, if you are new to all of this, is that there's actually very good evidence that supports many of the miracles told about in the historical narrative of the Bible, and especially evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. Christianity does not require us to check our brains at the door. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There are astrophysicists and mathematicians I know or who have, I have met who actually decided to become Christians because of the evidence. They follow Jesus because of the data. And there's a reason that millions down throughout history of PhDs and doctorates and masters and even on into the modern world believe that the Bible makes the most sense of the world around us. The real question at the center of the gospel is do you believe that Jesus really died for your sins out of love for you and that he really did raise from the grave? That's a decision you make in your heart, but also that you make with your rational mind. Uh, and... It's the only way to follow Jesus. You believe, you decide, you put your faith in that. And so wh wherever you're at in your process, I just want to say we're glad you're here. You're so welcome to be here. We encourage you to come on the weekends to ask questions, to study with us. It's okay to be in process on this. Uh, ask us for resources if you want to go deeper and learn more. And if you're at a point where you're thinking, yeah, I, I think I do believe. I do believe Jesus rose from the dead. I, maybe I just haven't jumped off the cliff yet so to speak, and gone all in on this being a Christian thing, uh, we'll give you an opportunity to do that later today, to make that commitment to give your life to Jesus. And with that, now a quick disclaimer or caveat on the text we just read to all of you who have been around church for a long time. In fact, out of curiosity, how many of you in this room sort of grew up in church in some way, shape, or form, or grew up going to church? Okay, look, quite a bit of us. I did as well. This story that we just read out of Daniel chapter 3, uh, think back with me. Do you guys remember the days in Sunday school? How many of you were around for the felt board? You know what I'm talking about? The felt board in Sunday school. It was a thing of glory. iPad had nothing on the felt board. And the story that we just read from Daniel 3, it was a spectacular story on the felt board, right? I mean, you had the megalomania king, usually with a braided beard, and then you had like the felt image you'd stick on there. You had the felt flames that you'd put on the, and then you can put the Babylonian soldiers in the flames. You even could put felt board Jesus in the flames next to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's like, oh, even the lamb on felt board Jesus' shoulders doesn't burn. It is a miracle, right? It was, this was good stuff. 
Now, the reality is, however, this is not a children's story, is it? In fact, on a serious note, I think in the West, where we're considerably free from any physical persecution in America, we tend to tame down and dumb down this stuff to sort of a feel-good, felt-bored, Sunday school, happy sort of level, because if you actually read it at face value, it's very provocative and disturbing, and in many ways, uncomfortable for the status quo. However, at the same time, because we live in a post-Christian society today, I actually find a story like this to be very encouraging and helpful for navigating the world around us today. So let's talk about that. What is this story really about, and how does it apply to our world today? If you're taking notes, three things. First, this story is about faithfulness to God amid cultural pressure. When everything is at stake, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down or commit idolatry under tremendous political, religious, and social pressure. And in America, you know, the pressures today may not look exactly the same as in Daniel's day, but we do have pressures today, don't we? when it comes to following Jesus in our culture. One of the pressures at a very basic level, and I'll start with this one because it's so relevant to the story we read, one of those pressures is nationalism, which historically the church in America is very susceptible to politically. You know, in Daniel chapter three, they're literally being forced to bow down and literally worship this giant golden image. Now today and in our context, no one's forcing us to literally worship some gold image of the red, white, and blue or any of that. However, nationalism can be a pitfall for many followers of Jesus today. And, and make sure you don't mishear me on this. I'm not talking about patriotism. There's nothing wrong with uh, you know, passion, pride, or loyalty uh, toward your country. That uh, can be a very honorable, very noble thing. What I say nationalism, what I mean is when you mix politics and religion together in a way where the lines get blurry and the hope and focus isn't so much on Jesus, uh, there's this very real type of nationalism in America where if we're not careful, you can subtly mix and convolute religion and politics together where the temptation is to swap out the kingdom of God for your personal political party and to swap out Jesus the Messiah for your political leader or candidate of choice. And the tendency is to then pin uh, so much hope on your future and livelihood and your family's future and livelihood on this leader, this system. And the reality is that as followers of Jesus, our, quote, allegiance, we're American citizens. Uh, our allegiance, first and foremost, of course, is to Jesus and his kingdom in life, not to the nation of America as number one. And everything has to fall in order under that. And, and we, we live in this tension, right? As Americans, Jesus calling on our lives were to be in the world, but not of it. So we don't withdraw or retreat and become anarchists. And, uh, no, we live in America. We're a part of this. We, we, uh, we carry what it means to be an American. We vote. We participate. We pray for our leaders. We're respectful. But you know, we have to understand there will be times, like the young men in Babylonian culture, where we'll face legislation or leadership or government direction or pressure that does not line up with the commands of Jesus and his heart for the world. And what then? Where it's not as simple as just voting your political party and it becomes messy and there can be a temptation at times for us to simplify 
and compromise on certain issues to make it easier. And in those times, to be faithful to God means we need wisdom to wrestle together as a community of faith over what it means to stay faithful to Jesus and the teachings of the Bible, regardless of where our culture around us is going at a government level. Uh, So there's nationalistic pressure, but also not just nationalism. We also today in our culture have pressures of pluralism, just like they had pluralism back in their day in Babylon. Uh, Pluralism, of course, refers to the acceptance or establishment of multiple moralities, multiple systems of worship. I was just in Austin, Texas last weekend for a work trip, which is a great city, and it's very similar to Portland culturally in Austin, Texas, actually. And we were walking around, and there was this sign up that said, always welcome, you know, to the city of Austin, but they, they turned always into two words. It was all space, ways, welcome. So the point being, all ways of life are welcome. And I love that, uh, that welcoming spirit of a city like that and of the context in we, which we live in Portland, where, you know, no matter what your, your faith uh, is, no matter where you come from and what your walk of life is, you're welcome in this place. I love that idea, but we all know there's something deeper there going on morally and philosophically, right, that bleeds into spirituality, where all of a sudden things get confusing really fast. It's that sort of ethos. Uh, I think that sums up the ethos of a city like Portland, where it's all about tolerance and open-mindedness and the acceptance of many ways, many paths at a societal mainstream level. And understand, even in the story we're reading this morning, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have a problem with these Jews worshiping Yahweh. That's not his problem. He just wants them to also worship Babylon when the music plays. He doesn't have a problem with them. He just wants that to be part of the spiritual mix, that they're open to also bow down and yield to the gods of Babylon and the nation of Babylon. You know, you can worship Yahweh just once the zither plays, worship Babylon too. And so in a culture like ours, what happens when our calling is to worship one God, Jesus, but our God makes these truth claims that in their very essence are exclusive truth claims? How do we follow a faith preaching not every path does lead to life? That eternal life is actually only found in Jesus and his way. And even though the Christian invitation is one of the most inclusive invitations ever, do you understand that? The invitation of the gospel is so inclusive because what's the invitation of the gospel? Come as you are. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've, how you've been living, whatever walk of life, whatever spectrum you come to the cross, and regardless of, of who you are, where you're coming from, you can find radical grace and salvation in Jesus. That's the invitation of the gospel. But of course, the message is, but you can't stay that way. Because every single one of us has to allow the gospel to do its work, to transform us from the inside out into the men and women God created us to be. And so... What do we do when we have this, this pressure because, uh, you know, to live for Jesus means we lose our lives in him and allow him to change us from the inside out. There's this tremendous pressure in our culture to cave and just kind of go with that undercurrent that is modern plurality. You can just stay the way you are forever and, and whatever, whatever you believe, you're good. It's all around us, which leads me to the next point if you're taking notes. This story today is about counting the cost of godly resistance in a broken world. I can't imagine what was going through the minds of these three young men as the soldiers were dragging them toward the fire. I mean, they had faith that God was going to deliver them, but, but when the rubber hits the road and they're being dragged to the fire, you have to wonder, am I about to die? 
You know, what was going through their minds? Death is imminent if, if God doesn't protect them and keep them safe. There's a very high cost to living faithfully to God for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylonian culture, and there is a cost of living the way of Jesus in our culture today. It's not the threat of murder or cremation for worshiping God like it was for these guys in this context, but there certainly are places in the world, by the way, where that's still very much the case simply for being a Christian. Uh, I work for an anti-human trafficking nonprofit, like Brandon mentioned. We operate in 16 countries, and there are certainly places we have people on the ground where there's total danger and persecution just for the fact that they're Christians. And there's places, some places I have to travel to for my work where I do have to think about the danger for being a Christian and visiting there and then uh, on top of the nature of the work I do. And that's something new for me and, and my family to wrestle with in our lives in the last few years. However, let's be honest, in America, the primary pressure is not physical danger, um, you know, maybe one day, who knows, but not physical danger. However, there is a very real social pressure. There is a social shame and social cost for following Jesus in a city like Portland, isn't there? For example, just share from my life, like personally, just the way that I'm wired, uh, I'm a style-conscious and trend-conscious person. I'm a, quote, creative, so I'm into art and fashion and uh, cinema and television, and I'm a, I'm a photographer. I take on these commercial photography projects on the side of what I do for my human uh, anti-trafficking work. And I work and I run in all kinds of circles of artists in Portland and other cities to do that. And just for example, like the way I talk, I don't say like the F word, okay? Or most of the other cuss words. I'm not perfect, God forgive me. But because I wanna like honor God with my speech, I, I don't use those words or other phrases that are very common uh, in some circles of my friends. And, and, and let's just get this straight. That doesn't make me very cool in some of the circles I run in. Like, it kind of makes me a loser. Like, whoa, straight-edge Christian hipster guy. <laughs> and it gets, it gets more complicated, too. Like, for example, um, because I follow Jesus, I've made this decision where, personally, I, I won't watch the show Game of Thrones. Okay, and I love uh, cinema and television, but I won't watch Game of Thrones. And let me just, I know this is very controversial, even in church, but I'm gonna go there. Okay, I'm, I'm talking to me. And this, if you watch the show Game of Thrones, this is not me judging you. This is not an indictment of what you, how you choose to live and all that. I'm, you know, it's not about rules, it's about grace. Okay, I just gotta say that. I'm talking me personally. I don't watch it, because from what I've heard, there's content, particularly visual content, that just wouldn't be helpful for me in my desire to live sexually pure and faithful to my wife and free of lust uh, toward people who aren't my wife uh, as a follower of Jesus in our culture. So I've decided not to watch it, but it's like there's some circles I'm in sometimes where it's like, you, well, have you seen the new, the, new, the new GOT? And like, oh my gosh, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh no, I haven't seen it. And, and why? Because of the naked people? Like, and I know, like, I know, you know, as Christians, you, you could take that tack where, like, you watch it with your spouse and you're, like, they're, like, ready to guess when the near-pornographic community is going to jump up and then, like, skip ahead and look away. And, you know, I know there's people who do that. Again, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying, me, this stuff makes me weird culturally. Okay, right? And there's, it gets way deeper than that. Like, I was a virgin until I was married 
culturally, freak show, right? <laughs> Following Jesus, and, and it's like all, living for Jesus in our culture, it's, it's not just this really easy thing to do socially, okay? And I think we need to just acknowledge we all have to navigate this culturally, don't we? Just like many of you in this room, I know what it's like to have a neighbor immediately not be interested in any type of deep friendship with me or to make assumptions about me just because I profess Jesus. I know what it's like to have someone assume that I'm judgmental or bigoted towards LGBTQ when, for example, I have multiple very dear LGBTQ friends who know that I love them and would call me a great friend. We live in a city where there is a stigma and reaction to Christians, and so there's a cost to count. Are we willing to suffer shame and endure social pressure to follow and experience life in Jesus and so that others may also come to know his love? Do you truly believe that what Jesus has to offer is better than what the world has to offer and any sort of social acceptance we could find culturally? Because that's at the heart of it. There's a verse, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Psalm 63. And there's a line in Psalm 63, we'll put it up on the screen, where David, the psalmist, he says, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David says, your love, God, is better than life itself. He's saying, like, my physical life, as I, as I know it, if I had a choice between my life and experiencing and walking in the love of God, I would choose the love of God. Because my, my, my life is temporary, I'll die one day, but the love of God goes on forever and can actually satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. And you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lived this reality because they were willing to trade all of it in to literally give up their very lives to worship this God. They had discovered this secret that life in him really is better than social acceptance or any of the fleeting pleasures that the world has to offer. The question is, have we discovered that secret? That there really is nothing better than the love of God and knowing Him. And what are we willing to risk to live faithfully for this God? Are we willing to endure social shame? You know, to be the only one who uh, doesn't go out clubbing at night on the work trip with everyone else? Are we willing to be the only one, you know, in your work circle who doesn't gossip and demean your boss behind her back? even though all your other coworkers are doing it, it makes them sort of suspicious of you that you never chime in and join in with it. Are you willing to be the only one who maybe doesn't get plastered at the bachelorette party? To be the only one on your basketball team who seemingly is not sleeping with your girlfriend? I say seemingly because a lot of that's just talk. Let's be honest. Do we believe that Jesus' love is better than what the world has to offer? And if so, are we willing to lovingly, quietly, and respectfully live different under pressure? Are we willing to resist and not conform to what society is trying to make us be? Not in a way that's preachy or self-righteous or rude, in a way that's very loving and respectful. Again, I love in the story how they're very respectful. They say, hey, you know, listen, your majesty, we, we understand you're the king. We know you're asking everyone to do this. Us, we worship the God of Israel. Our God is so great. We, we can't do that. I'm sorry, but, but no. So I guess we'll have to go in the furnace. Wow. 
like this quiet, respectful, but courageous resistance to the status quo, this refusal to just drift down the same stream that everyone around them is swimming in. And here's the encouraging part. If you believe that God's love and goodness is better than what culture has to offer, and you're willing to not uh, conform under pressure, but to live the way of Jesus, whenever you fight that battle, whenever you carry that burden, whenever you wear that social shame, there's a promise that God will meet you in that in a special way. Which leads us to the final thought. This story is about the presence of God in our suffering. You know, it's really fascinating to me that this story is about a group of minorities, three Hebrew, who are thrown into a furnace by an evil dictator. The reason that's so interesting to me personally is because the very reason that many modern people around us do not believe in God is in fact because of the many, quote, furnaces of the last 100 years of Auschwitz and Nazi Germany and the many other horrendous atrocities, many of which were committed in the name of Jesus with leaders twisting the scripture, again, nationalism, to fit, fit their own nationalistic agenda instead of actually living the heart and commands of God in the scripture. But this is a big dilemma for lots of people. You often hear in the modern world, how could there possibly be a real good and loving God when there's so much human suffering and evil and pain. And guys, the answer to that very question is right in the text we just read today. There is a fourth person in the fire. Think about the power of that and the message that sends about God, that he's standing right there in the blazing fire beside these three men. Because, you know, he could, let's be honest, he could have swooped down like Superman or any of the other, you know, Marvel with a cape and, you know, snatched them up before they hit the flames. Could have done that. He's God. He could have, you know, swung out there like Tarzan and whoosh, you know, and scooped them up. But instead, he's standing beside them in the shameful display in front of the entire kingdom where they're supposed to be put to death. He's right there on display beside them in front of everybody else, in the fire, in their suffering. This is the answer to the problem of suffering. It's not that God causes the affliction. In the story, God didn't cause or set up the furnace of fire. The affliction was caused by an evil human king who decided to do violent sin against other people, right? There is suffering in our world because of human sin and an unwillingness to listen to God's direction in our life and to rebel against him. And that unleashes suffering all around us in many ways in the world. But however, our God is the God who doesn't abandon us in our rebellion or in our human plight of the suffering we bear. He's the God who suffers with us. That's the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He steps into the story to join us in our pain in order to save us. There's this really cool quote by the old revivalist, Jonathan Edwards. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, he was writing about the passage where Jesus is in the garden, praying in anguish. It's so intense that he sweats droplets of blood. Remember this story? It's right before he's arrested and then crucified. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, Jesus was sweating because the door to the furnace had been opened and he was about to walk in. 
The gospel is that Jesus is with us in our suffering to carry us through, to save us. He goes into the furnace before us. What are the fires that you're facing at this point in your life right now? Because today there's an encouragement and a reminder that some of you need to hear that even at a very basic level, and it's talked about all throughout scriptures, as you are going through trials and difficulty and suffering in your life, it's a reminder you're not alone in that. You're not without hope. God is with you. He's there to help you, to get you through. Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so when you go into the fires in life as a follower of Jesus, we can always have that comfort and hope that God is with us, that we're not alone in it. When you get the crushing news from the doctor or when you bear that, that agony of having to watch a loved one go through their health journey. We just had some difficult news in my extended family this past week and this stuff is so heartbreaking to walk through. But... God's with us in the fire. He's there with you. He comforts the brokenhearted. When you're in the fires of the grind that is corporate America and the repetition of the eight to five, eight to five, eight to five, repeat, and there's coworkers that will gladly stab you in the back to get ahead, just like the astrologer Chaldeans in the story, and it feels like at times your sole worth and value as a human being depends on your work performance and output, and it feels so lonely at times, guess what? You're not alone. God's with you as you stay faithful and live for him at work. When you're in the fires of a difficult marriage, God is with you. He can give you the strength you need to keep going. When you're in the fires of parenting little ones and the, the mundane repetition of diapers again and the same little you know, baby show again and the kid music in the car again. And it's like, am I even an adult anymore? I feel like I'm stuck in baby land. And God's with you in that. Look up, look to your right or left. Who's next to you? Look to him. Rely on the strength he can give you one day at a time. When you're in the fires of parenting teenagers, I don't even need to describe that one, you know. As you continue to model to your children and teach them conviction, but at the same time, the importance of grace, God is with you. If he can get these guys through this furnace, he can get you through your fires too. And of course, the main point of the whole story, when you endure the persecution that comes with godly nonconformity to the status quo, the social shame we carry in living Jesus' way, there's this promise. Listen to me, guys. When you stand with Jesus, Jesus is standing with you. When you walk into the fires, Jesus will meet you there inside. And as you do that, as you carry the ridicule and the awkwardness and the shame associated with living faithfully in a broken world, not only is God with you, but he's also going to use you for great things. What happens in the story as a result of these three men resisting under tremendous pressure and staying faithful to God? What happens as a result of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's obedience? Worship of Yahweh is legalized in the Babylonian empire. So many people now are going to be able to experience God because these men were faithful. And guys, it works the same for God's people today. I know it's hard. I know it's just awkward 
at times. I know sometimes you feel like a freak, but as you live the way of Jesus, one day at a time, one decision at a time to say no to the pressure and yes to the way of Jesus, it might make some people around you furious, like Nebuchadnezzar in the story. It might make some people not like you, but some people around you are eventually going to say, tell me more. What's this hope you've found even when you're suffering? Something so tragic. What's this? Tell me about this love you found that's so unshallow. Tell me about this joy you have that, that isn't even affected by the situation around you. And God will use you for amazing things. Do you believe that? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word again reminding us today that there's nothing better than knowing you. That your way, though it is so often, it's, it's just so different from what culture might be modeling or recommending. The sway, the pull, the gravity we feel around us. God, again, we, we realize that your love is so much better. And I pray that you'd help us to be a people in a, a nation like ours, a people of courage in our time to continue to live the way of Jesus even when we could be misunderstood or not liked. Thank you for the courage we see in these three men if they could do something like that. We know you could help us to have courage in our context. So we humble ourselves before you again today as we worship now. We're deciding again. We, we choose you, Jesus. We worship you with our lives. Be with us heading into this week.